0: Hello, everyone. This is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast. Um, here today on this beautiful February evening in Berlin, and on the other end, well, with the with the Atlantic Ocean in between us, on the other end of the of North America, is David. David, why don't you say hi to everyone and tell everybody who you actually are?
1: Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, Flo. Uh, my name is David Boris. I am a Canadian military historian. From Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where it is cold but sunny this morning. Here on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and I also run a podcast called Cool Canadian History.
0: Cool Canadian History. That's a cool. That's yeah. a cool title. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, of course, you should all check that out. Um,
1: yes, please do. Please do.
0: Um, we have a very dedicated Canadian community, which is really cool. They are usually like the second on. Uh, on place number two after the U.S. in our viewer stats and everything. So I'm really happy to have you with us here.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Um, Okay, so maybe let's have a talk first about the Canadian Expeditionary Force in early 1918. I mean, we've seen Vimy Rich, uh, people who watch our show, they know about Arthur Curry, uh, they mentioned him um we also talked briefly a bit about the Canadian involvement in operations after Vimy, which I think there were some of them where Arthur Curry even said they were more impressive and more important than vimy Ridge. yeah that's right um but uh where was the uh, the c e f standing in february nineteen eighteen
1: um in February of nineteen eighteen the c e f was in a pretty um um strong position um it had as you mentioned it had sort of become involved in a series of battles that were significant tests of the combat capability of specifically the Canadian Corps, which was, of course, the frontline manifestation of the entire Canadian expeditionary force. The Corps had been successful at Vimy Ridge and then had engaged in the Battle of of Lens. And by February of 1918, the Canadian Corps itself was uh, experienced. It was large. It was powerful. It was getting a beginning to get a, a steady stream of recruits and reinforcements, and it was starting to be more and more commanded uh, by Canadians, which was by 1918 pretty phenomenal considering that in 1914 it was commanded almost primarily by British officers – Um, So by 1918, we have seen kind of this transformation of the Canadian Corps uh, beginning the war as this sort of amateur organization sort of uh, in the shadow of the British Expeditionary Force and by 1918 had very much emerged – there's a fairly powerful canadian corps and a per, fer, fairly powerful core formation itself on the western front
0: and i would suspect that uh, these canadian officers that you mentioned that they were non-commissioned officers they probably rose from the ranks through these battles that they actually fought together right
1: yeah the vast majority of them had um or or had been brought in as low-ranking you know, lieutenants and had risen up the ranks from, from the lowest levels of the officer position, which, as we know, that sort of institutional continuity uh, creates pretty effective leadership on the battlefield. Um, these, these, these men that were commanding the units, uh, they knew each other. They knew their commanding officer and Curry, and they, they knew many of the men working under them. Um, that creates pretty efficient cooperation and, and leadership.
0: And how difficult was it for uh, Curry to actually get get this through? I mean, it must you know it mustn't have been easy in the beginning, especially.
1: Uh, you mean to get to rise up the ranks? Do you mean particularly?
0: Yeah, and also to keep the Canadians together, and to get officers from within the troops, and to have this to form this kind of um, cohesive fighting force.
1: Uh, It was very difficult at times. Um, You know, in the perspective of the British command, Douglas Haig and others, uh, the Canadians were just one unit amongst other British imperial or British Commonwealth units. Um, And in in the mindset of the British, they could basically deconstruct and split apart and move about all the units in the larger BEF that included Australians, New Zealanders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What made the Canadian Corps so unique, though, was that it was also representing a nation. And the Canadian Corps was in many ways a national corps. Now, we would think of a national sort of military as like a national army, like the Second World War, First Canadian Army, right? That's the Canadian Army. Um, But in the First World War, it was a bit more complicated. So on one hand, you have the British High Command who seek to treat the Canadian Corps like any other corps in the British Expeditionary Force. So they can move divisions around. They can appoint commanders who they see fit. They can move officers around. But... At the same time, you then have Canadians, both politicians back in Ottawa, um, the capital of Canada, and of course uh, Canadian officers who are struggling and fighting to maintain this cohesion, maintain as much unity as possible within the Corps. And the reason they're able to do that successfully in the end, um, much to the chagrin of the British high command, is because they continually – use this narrative that hey this is a this is a national representation of us this is this is not just another corps in the british expeditionary force this is the canadian military overseas working under the umbrella of the british expeditionary force and by using this sort of national narrative or this rhetoric of a nation's army although it was just a corps formation they're able to keep much of the cohesion together and that allows them to sort of continually have Canadians coming up in the ranks, coming up in the ranks, coming up in the ranks. And the British High Command, time and time again, seeks to sort of stop that, not because they're trying to break up any sort of Canadian patriotism or nationalism or anything like that. They are just treating it like any other core formation in the BEF, but the Canadians are saying, no, no, no. We want to keep us together. We want to keep the divisions together. We want to keep this as homogenous as possible, and by 1918, hopefully have as many Canadians in senior command as possible.
0: Yeah, I I I mean, if we look at the machinations within the British High Command in early 1918, um, there was was the whole Woolly Robertson affair and the whole... Kicking Haig up the ladder, kind of thing that Lloyd George wanted to do, and everything. Where was uh, where was Curry in all this, and where where was Canada in all this? Did they just keep out of it uh, and try to keep the hats down?
1: Yeah, you know, honestly, that's exactly what happens for much of early 1918, and even boy, even into the spring of 1918, when the Germans launched that spring offensive, uh, the Canadians for the most part stay out of it. Not not because they they want to or they're trying to. Um, in terms of the political machinations of British high command, Curry is just not high up enough up the ladder, nor does he want to be. Uh, that that doesn't bother Curry at all. He doesn't want to be concerned with what's going on in British high command. And he doesn't want to be concerned with what's going on in in the British political scene that's related to what's going on. Um, so they're fine to keep their heads down, stay out of the way, um, and, 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 and maintain that cohesion. And then when the German Spring Offensive uh, is launched, so it's March, right, 1918, um, then – At the same time, the Canadian Corps just happens to be in a position, geographically speaking, where they don't take the brunt of the German assault. So not only are they sort of staying out of the, like you said, the machinations of British high command, but then they actually stay out of the way of this massive German offensive too. This allows them to maintain the cohesion.
0: And this probably also means that later on, they are probably a fresh reserve that can be thrown into the fray when the the tide is turning.
1: Well, Flo, that is exactly... What happens? I mean, this is this is exactly what makes the Canadian Corps so powerful uh, in 1918. You know, just as a side note, the British high command actually tries to take two divisions out of the Corps in March when things are looking the most dire. They try to break up the Corps and Curry refuses. And this does not make him popular amongst uh, British military high command. um, They're very, very angry about it. They protest to the Canadian government and the Canadian government says, look, like we want to keep this group together. We want to keep our core together. You're going to have to find other divisions to fill the gap. And uh, that's a pretty incredible moment if you think about it in terms of sort of national politics being played out on the big battlefield of the Western Front.
0: I mean, it's right after um, Hake's um, command with the backs to the wall kind of thing, so it definitely takes some—pardon my French—balls uh, yeah. to, to pull this off.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it, the yeah, the 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 sands that, that Curry shows in, in 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 refusing the request is is. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. You got, we got to put ourselves in the position too, because British High Command thinks the, the line's going to break. You know, this is this is a a dire moment in the war, and yet curry is either crazy enough or or smart enough one of the two and it's a fine line between the two of it uh to say to british high command look we're not breaking up the core you're gonna to have to figure it out
0: that actually leads me to one of my follow-up questions is um one thing that our, a lot of our canadian fans always write in about is that the germans basically were scared of the canadian core that they had that uh, one of the, some of the things that are mentioned is that the uh, the Germans say that the Canadians are the British Army stormtroopers, so to speak, and and also that they have a special unit that just tracks the movement of the Canadians uh, along the front line, so that they can reinforce the sector wherever the Canadians go and everything. And I always wondered, is this just you know some some jingoism, or is there what, what kind of truth is is there
1: to it? Uh, i well i, I you know I, as a military historian i got to say that it is there's there's part jingoism in there there's no question uh we We celebrate the first world war as perhaps canada's greatest military participation um there there's many great things we did in the second world War the Battle of the North Atlantic, liberation of the Netherlands, et cetera et cetera but the the nineteen eighteen the year nineteen eighteen carries this sort of mythic Well, 1917 and 1918 carry this sort of mythic kind of quality in terms of Canadians who study our own military history. So there is part jingoism in it. And I can't speak to the notion of this German fire brigade. I'm not sure if that existed or not. I can say, however, that at the Battle of Amiens, for instance, so August 8th, 1918, um, part of the deception plan, by the Canadian Corps, by the by the British Expeditionary Force that was launching that uh, on that first day, was to deliver Canadian material like um, pieces of clothing. Um, maps, orders, um, small Canadian ambulance units, which they actually took and went farther north from Amiens and do, and set up these sort of medical sort of tents. And they purposely dropped scraps of clothing and weapons and maps to give the Germans the impression that the Canadian Corps was farther north. And that was part of the deception plan that was used very effectively. Because of course, on August 8th, the black day of the German army, as they say, um, many, many German soldiers were shocked to find that they were fighting Canadians they had assumed that they were farther north so there certainly was by the summer of 1918 there's certain evidence that does show that the Germans were trying to pay attention to where the Canadians were
0: because they knew that the Canadians were still fresh
1: yeah absolutely there's no question i mean uh, i mean let's let's lay it out on the line here there's there's there is the f- simply put in 1918 in the summer of 1918 the Canadian corps was probably either one of the most or probably the most powerful core formation in the British expeditionary force on the Western Front. Now, by saying that, I'm not trying to say that the Canadians were better soldiers than the British or the Canadians were somehow um, – these elite soldiers naturally. What I'm saying is due to a number of reasons, the Canadian Corps was simply the most powerful or one of the most powerful core formations on the Western Front. The Australian Corps was also one of the most powerful form- core formations on the Western Front. And in fact, when the 100 Days campaign is launched, it's the Australians and Canadians who are side by side going forward. Um, And a couple of things, if you don't mind me going kind of down this rabbit hole, um, a couple of things that attest to this is first and foremost, the Canadian Corps was held out, generally speaking, of the heaviest fighting during the German spring offensive. So, So simply put, fresh. It wasn't involved in heavy fighting. It had not sustained significant casualties. It had time to replenish and rebuild. Number two, the British expeditionary force conducted a large-scale reorganization of their military. uh, And this was essentially diluting Um, some of the effectiveness of many of the British Corps. One of the examples is moving each brigade from four battalions to three battalions. So that's, you know, reducing it by a thousand men. That's a significant reduction of your frontline capabilities. The Canadian Corps and Arthur Curry specifically refused that reorganization. In fact, the British high command went to Arthur Curry and went to to the Canadian government and said, could we turn this into a Canadian army? And now you'd think to yourself, boy, if I mean, Arthur Curry and many generals, they would never balk at the idea of becoming a general of an army. This would be the first time in Canadian history that an army, a Canadian army had been formed. But Curry says no. And he says no because the creation of an army formation would create too much um, tail in the terms of the teeth to tail ratio, too much tail and not enough teeth. It would sort of dilute the fighting effectiveness of the Canadian Corps. So he refuses this reorganization, thus creating this cohesive, powerful um, large fighting corps that has can put numerous soldiers on the front line. Not to mention, finally, he, Curry emphasized the power of artillery in his organization, and he made sure that he had as many guns, as much artillery as possible. Um, so for a number of reasons, the Canadian Corps by 1918 is this super powerful um, um, corps formation fighting on the Western Front. Does that make them the shock troops? Well, I I would argue that they weren't being trained any differently than other British soldiers, but they certainly as a formation were extremely powerful by the summer of 1918. And the Germans, we have evidence to prove that the Germans were very much paying attention to where they were.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. Basically summarizing is Curry had the guts, but also maybe the genius to stay out of this Whole situation between Lloyd George and Haig, which then, I mean, the whole reducing the British um, brigade level to three instead of four was due to the reason that Lloyd George kept a lot of fresh troops uh, in in England at the time and everything. And the Canadians simply stayed out of this. Um, that's that's like that's a great thing. I actually think we should mention that in one of our episodes in the future.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating moment. And it shows, frankly, two things. It shows, number one, that Curry did have a genius. But his genius, while he was a a, a fantastic operational commander, his genius lay in the understanding of what it took to win those battles. And that was having Uh, an effective frontline capability, having soldiers, having guns, having weapons, all the things you needed to kill the enemy. Curry understood that that was the key and he wasn't willing to dilute it. Even at, even with the temptation of, Hey man, you're going to be, you know, the general of the first ever Canadian army. And he says, no, we're not going to reorganize. We're not going to do that. And there's, I mean, Honestly, Flo, I could talk for hours about this because uh, there's so many things that Curry does, reorganizing engineer uh, battalions, into engineer brigades, bringing in um, a counter-battery counter corps that is one of the finest counter-battery formations in the Western Front. So there's a number of things he does. But generally speaking, the key of this is he refuses to dilute the fighting effectiveness of the corps while the rest of the BEF is effectively diluting itself by reorganizing
0: Okay, so if we go back to that stormtrooper uh, question, I mean, I can see that they didn't get any kind of special treatment, extra rations kind of uh, treatment like the stormtroopers got on the German army. But this kind of uh, idea of counter batteries and, I mean, we saw it in Vimy uh, and also even at uh, at Lens that uh, preparation and a sort of low-level autonomy um, was actually pretty key to what Curry envisioned a successful plan and operation should be. So is that a parallel actually to what the, what Ludendorff did with uh, his uh, German doctrine changes in early 1980s?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a loose parallel. I don't think it's as tight as perhaps we would want. And, and you know historians were always looking for these parallels to say, ah, these are the same things. Um, there is a loose parallel, like you said, low-level autonomy. I think that was the big issue: is that um, Curry was given a bit more room to maneuver. He was allowed to work a little more outside of the box than your your standard British commander. Um, he stressed preparation, which was something that a lot of his peers, while a lot of his peers did employ preparation, Curry very much uh, stressed sort of he emphasized it at po- at times where the British high command and his peers and his uh, senior commanders were kind of saying, okay, maybe you're taking a little bit too much time in preparing. But he constantly emphasized this. And we see this, you know, for instance, at Hill 70. So the initial uh, operations at, at Lens, he takes m- mass amounts of time to prepare to assault the German positions just north of the city of Lenz. But after the hill is taken, uh, he then quickly tries to capture the city and without any preparation, and, and the actual attempt to capture Lenz itself uh, uh, collapses, it's a failure. Um, he, he so, as we say, sticks his neck out too far, too fast. And he gets hit. Um, And that really (laughs) drives home this idea that, okay, going forward, preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, And that is something that really makes Curry stand out. And I think he was able to use a lot of this preparation, or at least he was able to emphasize preparation because of, going back to what you said, this low-level autonomy. I think that allows him a bit more room to breathe, a bit more room to plan, and a bit more room to maneuver.
0: Okay. That's certainly interesting. Um, So last week I talked to Ed Lengel about the American Expeditionary Force. And one thing I was wondering, um, was there any sort of um, feedback loop also not just within the Canadian Corps, but back into the British armed forces in general? Because the ad described to me that the Americans basically refused to learn from their mistakes, uh, so to speak. They, they had to learn it the hard way, and they didn't listen to, you know, the experience of others. How was it with the Canadians? Did they have an impact on the other British forces as well?
1: Yeah, I think they did. Um, we know that after Vimy Ridge... Uh, A number of British officers came to Vimy to study the battlefield, Um, much like Curry had actually gone down to Verdun and studied the Verdun battlefield. So we do know that it was very common for uh, these officers to spend time on each other's battlefields to study it. We know that there was numerous lessons learned, documents being written by the Corps after Vimy Ridge, certainly after uh, Lenz. Uh, and, and these were being distributed up to high command and then back down to um, other Corps formations and other division formations. So there certainly was a, a, a level of intelligence sharing and lessons learned sharing and doctrinal sharing. Now, how much did that affect how the other British corps were were approaching their battles? That's much harder to tell. It's much harder to tell. Certainly in 1914 and 1915, or 19, sorry, 15 and 16, I would argue that most British officers were probably very reluctant to accept lessons learned from a colonial military formation. However, by 1917 and certainly by Vimy Ridge, that had changed. And so I think by the latter half of the war, um, there is a lot more openness to what the Canadian Corps is discovering as a formation, what Curry is discovering as a formation. And certainly even if we take Julian Bing, commander of the Corps before Curry, he moves up into army command. And there's no question that he began distributing his doctrinal lessons to his subordinate officers as well. So definitely by the latter half of the war, there is a broader access to information and a more openness to sharing information.
0: Okay. Well, it's certainly interesting. Um, <clears throat> there's one, one person that we talked in our show about, it's also one of our most popular episodes is about Francis Pega uh, the most successful sniper in the war. But uh, apart from him, do you, can you tell us a bit more about the story of the first nation soldiers that served within the Canadian military at the time?
1: That's a great question. I'm glad we're talking about that, Flo. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I think it's a really fascinating aspect. Let's let's go back to Canada for a little bit and understand the relationship between the Canadian government and the indigenous people of our country. It's not a good one by the First World War. Um, Most of the indigenous population have been forced, cajoled, or pushed onto reserves um, with promises that the government will help these people, and the government has time and time again failed to do so. War breaks out in 1914, and you have thousands of indigenous young men coming to recruit or to enlist to fight for this country that has in many ways betrayed their people. Um, by the end of the war, something like 4,000 indigenous soldiers will serve uh, in the CEF. And uh, um, and again, another thing to point out here, they don't have the vote. I mean, this is incredible. Right? Thousands of young men who don't even have a political say in the future of the country uh, uh, are volunteering to fight and die for that flag or for for that maple leaf or for that uniform. Um, And that's a pretty incredible – for me, I think that's a pretty incredible um, aspect of the volunteerism. Where does this volunteerism come from? Well, I mean I can't say that every – We know we have so many nations. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of of different nations and tribes and and different language groups in Canada in terms of our indigenous population. Different tribes and different peoples had different reactions to the war. Some felt that they would have no fight. Uh, Some different groups felt that there was no place for them in fighting this sort of British imperial war. But others very much embraced this sort of warrior culture of their nations. So an example is the Iroquois people, which kind of live around the Great Lakes region, sort of southern Ontario, Quebec, et cetera. Um, Many Iroquois signed up to fight, and the Iroquois, the most famous of the Iroquois nations uh, is the Mohawk, right? So these famous warriors, right? So in in these nations where warrior culture was pretty prominent, we see a a much higher percentage of, of enlistment versus sort of nations that don't have or don't emphasize the warrior culture as much. But the real story comes down to the fact that Four thousand of these young men were willing to fight and die for a country that had turned their back on them. And the sad part is, after the war, the country continues to turn their back on indigenous populations. And a lot of these veterans that return, like Frank, like Francis, um, become activists for the indigenous, for their indigenous peoples, um, and become activists trying to bring attention to the plight of the indigenous people in this country that the Canadian government, frankly, didn't care about. To be perfectly honest.
0: Hmm, okay. Um I mean, that's encouraging and sad to hear at the same time, of course, you know, as it it often is in history. Um, Another group of people that we talked about um, briefly in our Canada episode a few years ago was that the French Canadians um, were not really, I mean, you know, the expectation in the beginning was that they would be Quite uh, enthusiastic to fight uh, in a in a war where France was fighting as well, but uh, from what I remember, they weren't really down with it. So how how how, how were they feeling about the war, and how were they fighting it, and how did it change?
1: Very much in 1914, people kind of assume, well, of course, the French Canadians will want to go and defend France. You know, they're they're a sort of colonial mother country to speak, but there was this fascinating quote. One of the one of the great sort of social commentators and newspaper um, journalists. And editors of the time in in Quebec was a man named Henri Barassa. and Barassa says basically, um, France abandoned us. Why should we come to her aid? And what he means is, in 1763, so you know a long time ago, um, the British beat the French in New France and took over British North America, and the French never came back to to help and liberate the French Canadians. And Barassa is echoing this sentiment. He writes this in 1914 saying, why should France now think that French Canadians will come to her aid? So there wasn't this sort of colonial kindredship between the Quebecois or the French Canadian peoples in Quebec and France. That just didn't exist. Number two, um, you have a, a very serious issue in the Canadian military administrative structure where it's frankly uh, anti-French. Um, our, our minister of militia at the time was a man named Sam Hughes, and he despised Catholicism. So most of our French Canadians are Catholic at this time. And he refused to allow French-speaking units, which is insane considering we have such a large French-speaking population in this country. But he said no. Nope. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: And considering that you're fighting a war with France as allies. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. And this is this is sort of and, you know, again, I could spend hours on Sam Hughes because he's a and you should do an episode on him. He's a very interesting. We we,
0: we talked about the shovel and uh, we talked with our weapons guy about the Ross rifle. So (laughs) I know a bit about him.
1: A little little sense of it. Um, and, And, you know, here's this 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 minister of militia who was trying to make essentially this. English-speaking and while not Protestant but certainly not Catholic military in the early days of the war. And and Sam Hughes constantly alienates numerous French-Canadian elites and French-Canadian leaders. So he doesn't help the situation whatsoever. So we have the French-Canadians of Canada don't really feel a kindredship with France. And then they're alienated from the early days of the war by this minister of militia who wants the sort of English-speaking Protestant army. Then on top of it, you have the war industry. And frankly, the war industry's heartland is along the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. So, if you were a young French Canadian man, you could go and sign up with the CEF and go overseas and fight, or you could get a job at a munitions factory. Get paid more than you've ever been paid before and still in your own mind feel like you're supporting the war effort. What are you going to do? And you know, for all the aforementioned reasons, it's probably no surprise that many young French Canadians chose to work in the munitions industry as opposed to going overseas and fighting. Because for them, that felt like they were also serving the war effort. The problem is by 1917, our recruitment numbers are dwindling. Our casualty rates are escalating. And many in English Canada are looking at French Canada and saying, "Your percentages of young men that are that are serving in the CEF are much lower." Than in the rest of Canada, and that creates significant tension by 1917 and 1918. And certainly, when our government finally enacts conscription, um, riots break out in Quebec. All of Quebec lights up into riots, and there's death, and and the military is brought in, and there's shot, there's they shoot at protesters. It's chaos in Quebec. It's a it's a very 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 serious uh, uh, schism in our country by that point. But there's a lot of tension between English Canada and French Canada because of the perceived. Failure of French Canada to do their part to pull their weight.
0: Um, this kind of um, story about uh, well people doing their part for their country in a munitions factory, of course, also brings me to the role of women. Um, because, I mean, I would expect that they also worked in uh, the arms industry in in Canada, like they did in Britain. Is that true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Unprecedented numbers of women suddenly came into positions and jobs that were previously thought of as the male sphere of a man's job. And and we see tens of thousands of women working in the munitions factories, working in shipbuilding yards, just, you know, these type of jobs that prior to the First World War would have been unheard of to see a woman working. In. And yet, you know, the demands on labor, the demands on manpower, the demands uh, of a, a country at total war require this type of sort of gender breaking scenario. Um, and they certainly, we see, you know, tens of thousands of women uh, uh, taking part and doing their part in this way that the issue of course comes down to, does this mean, you know, does this mean major steps forward for women in Canadian society? Sadly, it doesn't mean as much as we think we like to think it does because immediately after the war, um, all those women that are working in these jobs, 99.9% of them are expected to quit and go back into the home and have families. So, very quickly, Canada reasserts its sort of traditional views of masculinity and femininity. Now, this is kind of that old saying, you know, one, you know, one step forward, two steps back. This does make some progress. Because, of course, in the Second World War, we see all these women once again brought into the factories. So it sets precedent for this for the future. It isn't groundbreaking after the war. It doesn't change or it doesn't drastically or dramatically alter women's roles in Canadian society once the war ends.
0: Okay. um, That seems to be a bit of a common thing for the subgroups uh, we talked about now. I mean, we, we mentioned the... Uh, the women that had probably some expectations after ser- serving in uh, in their way we had the uh the Aboriginals of Canada that wanted to, that probably expected something in return for what, what they did. And um, I mean, the Can- Canada itself probably expected something for what they did for the British and had some expectations by 1919. So was everybody disappointed and had high, high hopes, or how, how did it go in 1919?
1: That's a, you know, it's funny when you ask that question, it, it actually puts it, it paints it in a picture that there was a lot of disappointed people after the war. First and foremost, people are asking themselves, why did we? fight this war, right? Why did why did so many millions of young men die? What was the purpose of it all? Because, of course, Canada, like many countries in 1918, 1919, is facing a recession. So a massive economic recession with the collapse of the war industries. You have women being told to go back in the homes, have babies, you know, embrace their traditional roles. You have indigenous soldiers coming home to a country that continues to ignore them and their people. You have a country like Canada that is hoping to get this great seat at the post-war table and, frankly, is Relegated or or treated like its previous colonial self. So yes, there is a significant amount of disappointment in the in the months and years following the war. Not to mention the fact that most people in 1919, 1920 in Canada and elsewhere, Britain and, and other countries, frankly wanted everything just to go back to the way it was pre World War One. You know, the First World War just seemed like this utter break from reality. This this crazy, insane unprecedented war, death, carnage, change, and everybody, most people, were saying, let's just go back to 1914 and almost pretend it never happened. And and, and, and that that's a big problem, right? Because it can't. It never will. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think that's one of the best summaries of World War One I heard in a while. That's, like, uh, that's <laughs> oh, quite, very you. good. I think it's, uh, depressed.
1: I, I, it's you, a bit depressing.
0: Yeah, it is. But yeah, I, 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 kind of, I can see how everybody involved kind of wished it never happened. But uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, well, David, um, thanks a lot. This was very informative. I learned a lot personally. I think our listeners also learned a lot. Um, before we go, can you tell us a bit more about your podcast?
1: Sure, absolutely. I just want to say it was a pleasure talking to you, by the way. I, I always enjoy rambling on about the First World War, or any war for that matter. Um, the Cool Canadian History uh, started a couple years ago. Um, it's a bi-weekly podcast that just sort of takes little episodes in Canadian history, and I spent about 15 to 20 minutes kind of talking about what, what happened. So we did an episode on Francis Pegamagabo. We did an episode on indigenous soldiers in the First World War, but it's not military focused. That's part of it, of course, because the centenary is going on. We do a little bit more of, of, of First World War stuff, but it's anything ranging from uh, any aspect of Canadian history, just anything that I find really interesting that suits the narrative and, and is significant, both the good and the bad, too, because, of course, I don't think we do anyone justice if we try to paint some picture of Canada just always doing great things. We've done, we have done. our our own dark history that needs to be uncovered as well. So it kind of spans times and and themes and and topics uh, from early days on to now.
0: Well, that sounds very interesting. Of course, we will put a link to that in the podcast description so you can subscribe to it. Uh, Well, thanks again, David. That was, as I said, very informative. And I wish you a stellar morning on the other side of the world from here.
1: Thank you, Flo. Appreciate it.